hello, good afternoon, and happy almost weekend. I'm your host, Tiny Levitt, and this is the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. And to be quite frank, we almost didn't have an episode this week, and yet we instead have probably the most jam-packed episode in a few weeks. Obviously, it's been a tremendously challenging week for our country uh, between coronavirus and obviously and protests across the country, an objection to police brutality. We almost didn't have an episode. And in fact, I, I skipped Wednesday and figured if there was breaking news later in the week, we'd have an episode. And sure enough, two pieces of breaking news that we had to cover. First, the NBA announces its schedule, and now we know when the draft is, which means now we know when the NCAA's uh, deadline for players to return to school or stay in the NBA draft is. So we're going to touch on that. And then just as Kevin Flaherty and I finished our conversation about the NBA draft, we found out that Oklahoma State was banned from the 2020-2021 postseason, which of course is disastrous for that program, but it is notable on a national level because Oklahoma State had a very strong recruiting class headlined by number one prospect in the 24-7 sports composite, Cade Cunningham. Now, if Cade doesn't participate in the postseason because he leaves for the G League or stays at Oklahoma State. However that plays out, like you'll hear from me and Kevin later, he'll be the third number one player overall in the past six years to not appear in the NCAA tournament. Obviously not something that the NCAA wants. So very, very busy episode today. But I did want to acknowledge the things going on in our country right now. We are aware of this. We actually tried to have an episode about uh, the college basketball players and coaches who who participated in protests this week. Unfortunately, um, most of them declined to speak, so we didn't have an episode about that. But it's definitely on the mind. And and if there's a way for us to properly uh, address that issue, we will. But until uh, there's a proper uh, way to do that... I am not the right person, and I, and I think Kevin agrees that he also is not the right person uh, to be discussing these issues. It's not our area of expertise, and so for now, uh, we're not going to do an episode about that. So today, we're going to talk about the NBA draft, what that means for the NCAA season, and then we're going to talk about Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham receiving a ban from the 2020-2021 postseason. Let's hit it, Kevin. Okay, joining me now, we've got Kevin Flaherty on the other line, and Kevin, we've got some big news out of the NBA you and I have been waiting for this for a while, and I'm just going to ask real quick, how you doing? Because I'm about to list off a whole bunch of dates, and if I don't ask now, I'm never going to get the chance. Things are going uh, are going pretty well over here, and uh, hope uh, hope things are are safe for you, and things are going well for you as well, Tony. I appreciate that. So NBA announced the other day that they're they're coming back, uh, which means that June 15th, players who are uh, abroad right now return to their team city on June 21st. All players should return to the team city. Coronavirus texting begins the next day, blah, blah, blah. The NBA is hoping to have their NBA finals come fall and in late September or October, which means that theoretically the NBA draft, which is now penciled in for October 15th, could take place just three days after the NBA finals conclude. And uh, meanwhile, the NCAA announced that it is going to extend the deadline for players to uh, withdraw from uh, the NBA draft consideration to come back to school until August 3rd. Uh, Dan Gavitt, NCAA Senior Vice President for Basketball, 
said that this provides the utmost flexibility to student athletes testing the waters to make the most informed decision about their future during this uncertain time. And, and Kevin, that's where I'd like to start. Does this date, August 3rd, provide the utmost flexibility to student athletes who are testing the waters to make the most informed decision about their future during this uncertain time? No, I don't think so. And, and I think part of the reason that it doesn't is you're looking at a combine if they wind up having a combine that's probably going to be after that date. And so a lot of these guys, the reason that you declare is not necessarily to enter the NBA draft. It's to get yourself in front of NBA scouts to compete against the other best guys, you know, in this draft class and, and kind of, you know, give them something to, to think about it and remember you by for the future. And, and by doing it, you know, on August 3rd, uh, and I think they said either August 3rd or 10 days after the combine, you know, whichever we all know. comes first. We all yeah. know it's going to be August 3rd. Yeah, exactly. The I, Jonathan Giveney of draft express, uh, anticipated that the combine would be somewhere around the end of August, potentially that I think the 27th and 28th is what he was thinking. So yeah, you're looking at August 3rd and you're looking at August 3rd without being able to be in front of NBA teams with the combine setting. It provides the most flexibility for college basketball coaches, I think is the more accurate way to put that in that they aren't waiting until September to know whether they're going to have these guys back on their rosters. They're going to find out much earlier than that. But for the players, the date just seems a little too early for them to really get out of this draft process what they would have liked to be able to get. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was hoping you would go in that direction. And, and before we even get to the impact of the players, let me ask you a question from that coaching perspective, because I think it, it, it is worth some consideration. If these players are in consideration for the draft, they're without question going to be major contributors on their college team if they come back. And so one could understand the frustration a, a coach might feel if they still don't know if they're going to have a, a major contributor um, a, a, as late as just six weeks before the, the season begins. However, in terms of action, there's not much that any of these coaches could really do, even if they found out right now that these guys aren't coming back. The vast majority of, of uh, potential contributors in the transfer market have already chosen schools, and, and the few remaining will only be able to take up, you know, five, 10 of the spots among the 60 odd players who could potentially come back to school. So am I missing something in terms of like action for the coaches? Because I, I can understand the frustration, but I don't think there's anything they could do, even if the players had to remove themselves from contention today. It would be tough. I think you're absolutely right in that the vast majority of options have passed. There aren't that many guys left on the graduate transfer market. You're going to see a few pop up here and there. You know, Andrew Nemhard is the one that that really stands out in terms of him electing to return to college, but not to Florida. And, and so if you're sitting there and you're, let's say, Gonzaga, for instance, and, and you're sitting there with Joel Ayai technically out there in, in the draft pool, you know, that, that's that's maybe a decision that, that you would have to make. Like, hey, do we go after this guy, you know, feeling like a guy he's probably going to come back? Or do we, you know, do we go ahead and and, and roll the, with, with the way we were going to go ahead and go? And, and so there are a few options out there. Most of them are gone. 
you're usually going to have a late reclassifier or two. You know, Musa Cisse is the one that that recently reclassified and will make a decision fairly soon. Last year we had Invali Dante, you know, go to Oregon really late in the process. I think, you know, he elected to reclassify after Peach Jam, you know, which is in July. And so there will potentially be another top recruit or two uh, who, who will reclassify. Of course, there's always, you know, there's always these guys, uh, international players that, that people seem to pull in a little bit late. But like you said, it's it's not like if you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, we're, we're worried that our small forward might not be back next year. It's not like you have a list of 10 targets up on the wall that you can replace that guy with. Your, your options are pretty limited as a coach. Yeah, and even for those kids who are reclassifying, it's not like they're recruitment begins all of a sudden now these kids have prior relationships with schools at schools who many of our experts at 24 7 sports have already put crystal balls in for sure. so if if you're a team like illinois who has two guys dipped it in the market i don't think you could jump into the into the fray for jonathan kaminga if he decides to reclassify and i think if you're in that position maybe you know not involved in the recruitment of someone who's going to reclassify you're not in that top tier then you have to pray, you know, in this particular year that a couple of kids enter the transfer market uh, specifically uh, to get closer to home uh, due to the coronavirus. Uh, and for that reason and that reason only, because that probably is the only thing that's going to enable a kid to be eligible this year. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And it does bring up a little bit more of an X factor from a transfer standpoint. And I think you hit the nail right on the head as far as a lot of these recruits. You know, if if you weren't recruiting Jonathan Kaminga before and he goes ahead and decides to reclassify, it's going to be awfully tough for you to have that conversation with him and say, well, you know, we'd really like you for this year's class. We have a spot for you. You're already playing way behind and you're not likely to catch up in that scenario. So, I mean, transfers are probably going to be, you know, the the best option for, for some of these guys. But, but I, I think even more than that, it's just coaches – wanting to have an idea of what they're working with next year. And, you know, you take a a team like Gonzaga that we brought up earlier, you know, people expect them to return those guys, Corey Kispert and and Philip Petrusev and and all of those guys. And and so, you know, a lot of people, ourselves included, have Gonzaga as the number one team in the country with those guys coming back. I, while, you know, if one of them makes a decision to go to the NBA or, or makes a decision a little bit earlier, it doesn't necessarily affect where they're going. But at the same time, Mark Few would certainly obviously love to, to know sooner rather than later, hey, this is, this is what our roster is. You know, this is, this is who's, uh, who we're probably going to put on the floor, and, and this is how we're going to proceed this year. Yeah, and, and so I wanted to ask you um, – kind of from that coach's perspective, what things are going to look like between now and that August 3rd deadline? You know, the NCAA just announced that it's going to allow voluntary workouts for basketball on campuses starting this week. 
already happened. Uh, and, and June, July, August, many teams are having summer practices. You know, often teams will do a, a, a team building trip abroad and, and play teams in the Bahamas or in Italy or somewhere. Obviously, that's not happening this year with coronavirus. But the summer practice time presumably is an opportunity for coaches to, to kind of get a sense for what they have on their roster, try, start implementing uh, new schemes and such. And so I'm curious, what do you think will happen during that summer practice time with these players who still have one foot in the draft and another in the NCAA? You know, the biggest thing is going to have to be that their their college coaches are going to have to communicate with them. And and that sounds like a, a really simple thing, obviously, but they're going to have to tell the players, hey, this this is where you're weak. This is where you need to get better over this offseason. And it's not just about impressing NBA scouts. It's about, hey, you know, we're a better team if you learn to handle the ball a little bit better over the summer. We're a better team if you can get 500 shots up a day and extend your range a little bit. And so it, there does become a, a little bit of that duality in that, you know, the player on one hand, if he's got one foot in and one foot out, you know, he's trying to think of, hey, how am I going to impress these NBA scouts? What's going to be the best thing? And yet their college coach still needs to really be on the phone with them and talking to them about, okay, if if you return, this is what we're going to need to see more of from you. And I, I think that that communication is going to be a really vital key in terms of, you know, what these guys are able to develop when they aren't under the coach's wing. Because it's a lot easier when a guy's on campus and and you can say to him, you know, hey, do you, do you get your shots up today? Did you, you know, did you work on, you know, uh, on your ball handling today? Did you work on, on passing drills, et cetera? And so I, I think that that communication just becomes that much more of a key because this process is so much more drawn out now. Yeah. And last week I, I spoke with Evan Daniels on this pod and we were talking about his many interviews for 24-7 Sports Social Distancing Series. And when he brought coaches on, they talked about how how challenging it has been this year to prepare their players for the NBA draft because there is no norm. There's no normal this year. There's no process. There's there just is this looming this looming notion that there's an NBA draft. I saw one NBA draft expert say it's like a Groundhog Day when we found out there are going to be three more months of NBA draft talk. And, you know, and that was before they were coaching. And I'm curious, do you think maybe coaches might have less attention for these guys because they don't even know if these guys are going to be on the team or not? Or maybe they give them more attention in hopes that they come back. Like that, that dynamic just feels really weird to me because usually when people are going through the draft process, the season's over, right? And they're, they're not coaching. It's, it's a time to relax and rest for players. It's April, it's May, and NCAA basketball is over. Here we are ramping up towards the season and we still don't know. Like, do you think it'll go in either direction in terms of the coaches giving more or less attention to these guys who are half in, half out? Sure. And I, I think the conditioning is a really interesting aspect of it too, because it pushes your conditioning workouts further back uh, for, for these guys who aren't going to be there. You know, there was, uh, I can't remember who it was. For some reason, I'm thinking it was Ted Ginn or, or maybe Charles Woodson. It, it was somebody in the Big Ten, and they were talking about how when you go to the NFL scouting combine, you're in combine shape. You're not in football shape. Like if you had to go out and, and play four quarters of a, of a game at that point, you're not where you need to be, but you're, you know, you, you – 
you're tailoring your workouts around what you're going to need to be able to compete in that sort of setting. And basketball is somewhat similar. You know, you're you're putting yourself into into situations where you can run the fastest three quarter court sprint, or where your vertical is going to to get maxed up a little bit. But you're not necessarily preparing yourself to go out and play 38 minutes against Michigan State in November. And, and so, uh, I think the conditioning aspect will be interesting since this is stretched out. What I wonder, honestly, Tani, is for guys that that maybe aren't going to draw as much attention from NBA teams for coming in for individual workouts, whether we're going to see a lot of players start to make the Nemhard decision and say, you know what, this draft process just isn't worth it for me because I'm not going to be able to participate in the combine. I'm going to go ahead and come back to school. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see us get, you know, eight to 10 names like that, making that sort of decision here over the next, you know, 20 or 30 days. Well, you know, for me, the big, the biggest uh, indicator more than, more than the individual team workouts is there are a group of people every year who are just flat out, not invited to the combine. And I forget who it was, who said this, Uh, I'm not giving attribution because I forget, but we're not going to have that opportunity. And, And which makes those early team, uh, personal workouts all the more important because uh, not being invited to the draft combine is a real indictment on your chances uh, of being selected in those top 60 in the NBA draft. Uh, and, and if you're not invited, then you're really going to have to do something special to to get consideration. Then I hope people's uh, agents and family are, are communicating that to them. Sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, it makes it a lot harder to have an off day in an individual workout as opposed to, you know, somebody who might get invited to a combine and be able to go out there because, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, all, all you need is one, you know, all you need is one team to to fall in love with your game or or to think that, Hey, this guy can help us win. But you think about the number of guys who get invited to the combine, not all of them get drafted. And you think about the fact that, you know, the international guys aren't usually at the combine and that's another pool of players that they're drafting from. And so I think it becomes that much harder to put yourself on teams radars. And so you really have to go in with the mentality that, Hey, I may only have three to five team workouts and only be able to work out for these specific teams. One, you better pick the right teams. You know, if, if you feel like, you know, hey, the Lakers invited me and I need to go here and, you know, you don't really have a chance of fitting in with the Lakers and you just wasted one of those workouts. And if you go in with somebody that you have a chance to be drafted by and you have an off night or, or don't put forth the most effort, you just wasted one of those. And so I think it puts a lot more onus on, on the players and a lot more pressure on them to perform in those individual workouts, given that that may be the only feedback they receive before August 3rd, where they have to make this decision. Wow. You know, you know, Kevin, what you were just saying to me was very relatable. It almost sounded like the way my father preps me for regular job interviews. And that's not something I think about with NBA because that's such a unique situation. But with without the opportunity to meet with all these people and have the opportunity to be there in person and to get workouts, it does uh, uh, have a lot more resemblance toward a normal job application process, which 
is is one of many uh, unique ways that this year uh, coronavirus impacted NBA draft season uh, is is different from all the rest. And I did want to turn two more questions for you towards the coronavirus because I, I feel like with everything that's going on, people have forgotten why the uh, the NBA draft and the NBA season and sports in general have been have been delayed and rightfully so. Obviously, the things going on in our world are very important, but. The NBA pointed out that they are hoping for a December 1st start for next season, which means that theoretically the 2021 draft should be fairly routine, even if delayed you know, by a month or so. The same practice, the same things. And, and with the, the specter of potentially a vaccine for the coronavirus kind of on the horizon now, you, know, you kind of wonder if it would make sense for kids to just sit this draft out. This is a weird situation. Have a good year in college and maybe come back because next year is going to be, you know, relatively normal. Sure. I, I think that that's, that's an interesting take on it. And the other thing that, that could be fascinating will be how teams will use their G leaguers this upcoming year. Because if you have such a quick turnaround from the playoffs to, you know, to the regular season of the next year, you know, everybody hates the phrase, but we're talking about a lot of load management there. I mean, you're not necessarily going to want, you know, Giannis leading the Bucks to the finals or whatever, and then turning around and playing just about every game the next season. And so it's going to put more onus, I think, on the, the guys that you rotate through at the end of that bench, you know, sort of nine through 12. Um, and, and so maybe if you're a G leaguer, you feel like, or you're headed to the G league, you feel like you're going to have a better shot to impress this year than, than maybe you normally would. But I, I'm right there with you, you know, even with that, even with having said that, I, I think that if I were a borderline guy this year and I felt like, hey, I'm not a top 20 pick, I, I would really think about coming back just because uh, I think it, it's going to be tough to really impress yourself onto, uh, onto NBA people. The one thing that does uh, maybe send it the other way, and I know, Tani, you and I have talked about this, this is a relatively weak draft. And because of that, maybe you decide to stay in because you feel like coming back wouldn't actually gain you that much traction when you add in the additional talent in next year's draft, which should be a lot better. But at the same time, you know, if you're sitting there and you're not sure where you're projected and, you know, you're you're not really sure that you're going to have a chance to impress NBA scouts, it does make a lot of sense to, I think, not just come back, but decide to come back fairly soon and work on your game with your team and all of that. And so, yeah, that I, I would definitely think about coming back given that this could be a, you know, a, a so-called one year blip or so on the radar. Well, you know, I, I do want to play devil's advocate for a second. Sure. And, and to your point about the, uh, the way the G league is going to be used. I think, you know, w- one thing that is unspoken is the idea that there could be a resurgence of coronavirus come fall and winter, in yep. which case, you know, the G League teams might be all that much more important because uh, a couple of guys on a team could uh, contract coronavirus and be out for two weeks at a time. And these G League guys, you know, would feel, uh, you know, that they have an opportunity to really step up on an NBA roster uh, in, in a moment when their team really needs them. Alternatively, you know, I was wondering, you know, how this August 3rd date 
interacts with the football season because on the college level, because the first week of college football is the last week of August, August 29th, I think is the first game, which means that there are four weeks almost in between the deadline to withdraw from the NDA draft. And the first time the NCAA and the conference commissioners and the university presidents and athletic directors actually get to see what their coronavirus practices are going to look like in reality when they're having, you know, uh, 80 some odd football players on a field on two sidelines every weekend when they're having scrimmages between uh, college basketball. And I haven't seen anything from any university AD or the NCAA or a conference commissioner that has really addressed what would happen if say after Alabama plays uh, USC week one of football, where 10 of those guys uh, test positive for coronavirus on Tuesday, what's the protocol? If that's the, you know, if, if that situation uh, plays out poorly, I could see it impacting the college basketball season, at which point, you know, these guys probably would have been better off to go into the NBA and been paying, getting paid. Uh, and, you know, so I, I can see it both ways, whether it's good to come back because next year's draft is more normal or perhaps to go because uh, this year's college basketball season is not going to be normal at all. I can see it from either side. Yeah, I could definitely get that too. And you bring up a good point. And I thought, you know, Bob Bowlesby was talking about um, potentially the competitive inequity uh, in football, given that let's just say that Oklahoma State is scheduled to play Baylor, you know, on a random Saturday in, you know, in October. And Oklahoma State has three players come down with coronavirus. Well, obviously, you would think that game would be canceled because you would need to, you know, quarantine the rest of the Oklahoma State players. Baylor wouldn't play even if they were healthy because of Oklahoma State's situation. Well, you're not going to cancel all of the Big 12's games. You know, you're going to cancel that one, sure. But, you know, if Kansas, Kansas State's that same weekend, if Iowa State and West Virginia's that same weekend, they're going to go ahead and play. And so basically trying to fill in the holes of that schedule, I think that there's there's so much interesting about this process, obviously from a college football standpoint, but when you look at it from college basketball, it's going to merit watching that because we don't know how people are going to react. We don't know heading into champions classic, you know, if Michigan state has two guys get coronavirus, how they're going to handle that, whether they're just going to cancel it. We don't know, you know, if you get a conference game or two scheduled, whether in late February, all of a sudden you're going to try and make that up and have, you know, a team playing three or four conference games in a week. And so, I think there are some definite unknowns when we try to project this season forward. And given those unknowns, like you said, you know, that that may be another factor where you say, you know what, even if this draft situation isn't ideal, even if I'm going to go and I'm going to be the number 50 pick because I didn't really get a chance to put myself out there, it might be worth going just because, hey, for the next year, I'm going to collect a paycheck no matter what happens. Whereas, you know, Hey, if I return to college basketball and, and anything winds up happening, it winds up being, you know, a half season or whatever, you know, may, maybe you wind up in a situation where your stock is even worse next year and you didn't get the, the pay to, for your troubles basically. Yeah. And to bring this full circle, I just, 
the the NCAA has some leeway, or I guess the conference commissioners and ADs really have some leeway on the back end of the upcoming basketball season because the NBA is starting later. The MLB is in its own turmoil. They could theoretically push the season by month and have no big deal, have March Madness be April Madness, um, because it's not like they'd be competing up against the NBA playoffs. That's not that's not how the schedule is looking like for next season. And, and with that in mind, it just feels extra irresponsible or unfair, really, to the the players who are testing the draft that they that they put this August third deadline so early. I don't know. It, it just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I I definitely get that, and it's unfortunately there's not a good answer. There, there really isn't. There's more questions than answers at this point, and that that makes it tough if you're a player whose livelihood is on the line. I mean, not just you know, not just for the future, but if you're one of these guys in the pool and you're legitimately considering going to the NBA, you're not just there to impress upon upon NBA scouts. If, if you're Jared Butler for for Baylor, you know, and you're sitting right there and, you know, maybe with good workouts, you can push yourself into the first round. If not, maybe you're going to go 30 to 40. Um, how do you decide? It's, it's something that, that I think is going to have to be different for every guy. And, and as crazy as it sounds, I, I think it makes the workout so important and it makes, your agent's knowledge of the NBA and what different teams are looking for and how they play that much more important too, because it's going to be up to that person to get you in front of the right people to try and impress upon them and give them the reason to go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Evan Daniels, again, last week when he was on the show was talking about just that, making sure that like this year, having people giving you the right information could be as important as it has ever been in the NBA draft uh, process. I I think that's uh, just about all I've got for the NBA draft, Kevin. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's for obvious reasons it's it's the most fascinating NBA draft in, in a long time, and yet at the same time, because there's a lack of star power, you know, particularly at the top, not great depth. It, it's kind of funny because I, I feel like a lot of drafts you have intrigue for different reasons, but uh, but this is the wildest one that I can remember and. Like we talked about, that that August 3rd deadline I don't think really does a whole lot to help the players make their decisions or, or add much flexibility for them. And so we could uh, we could see a whole bunch of decisions here over the next month, month and a half before we even get to August 3rd. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, keep in touch and uh, get back on here as, as we get closer and closer to the draft. It feels like it should be soon, but I just checked this morning. We're four months away oh. from the NBA draft. So we've got time, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming on on a Friday. Thanks a lot, Tony. Okay, we're back again with, uh, with Kevin. Again, again, Hamevin uh, Yavin. Uh, that was Hebrew for those, those who know, know Kevin, and, and those who don't know, uh, powers of technology are very strong and they're strong enough so that when they mess up, they figured out not to tell us what happened so that we have to re-record. And I've been saying for a long time that any podcast that doesn't have at least one uh, segment record that disappears into the ether is not a podcast at all. So here we are recording uh, a reaction to Cade Cunningham and Oklahoma State getting a 2020-2021 postseason ban from the NCAA. Again, Tiny Lovett here, Kevin Flaherty. Kevin, uh, immediate reactions, Oklahoma State 
removed from the postseason this upcoming year. It, it just seems really harsh. And it seems another example of the NCAA penalizing the people who, you know, don't really have anything to do with it. I mean, you, you're penalizing potential future student athletes by removing scholarships. You're penalizing the players on this year's team who had nothing to do with the charges. And you're penalizing Mike Boynton when he wasn't the head coach when Lamont Evans w- was doing all of this. It was under Brad Underwood. And not even that Underwood should be punished. I mean, it was, it, it was Lamont Evans doing it. But Mike Boynton never coached a single game with Lamont Evans as, as one of his assistants. And so when you when you look at all that, when you look at the fact that Boynton is now, you know, heading into a spot in his career where he's kind of in, you know, put up or shut up mode and he had a team that looked pretty capable of putting up this year when, it, when you looked at what they added in a top 10 recruiting class, according to the 24-7 Sports Composite, all of a sudden did not be able to play in the postseason. It's a major, major blow for that program. And yet another example, like I said, of of the NCAA sort of stepping harshly uh, on a program and on people who didn't necessarily have anything to do with the violation in the first place. Yeah, while we while while you were talking, I just pulled it up. It seems to me that the only person who who was really involved, who is still at Oklahoma State, is the athletic director. Nothing, nothing for him. Obviously, he's not he's not the one whose uh, whose scholarship has just been revoked. Very interesting from the NCAA. But wh- one of the most interesting things to me, and you and I spoke about this off air before we hopped on here, is this is yet another number one prospect, Cade Cunningham, number one in the 24-7 sports composite, who is, as of right now, slated to not appear in the NCAA tournament. And if he doesn't, he would be the third such prospect, the third number one prospect to not make the NCAA tournament in the past six years. That's half of them. And and surely that's bad for the sport. Sure. And to take it a step further, you look at last year, um, the NCAA, if Cade Cunningham doesn't play this year, if he elects to go to the G League, uh, you're looking at two seasons where the NCAA, because of decisions they have made, has gotten a combined three games out of the number one player in the, the 24-7 sports composite. You know, James Wiseman, they didn't ban him for the season, but but certainly the suspension played a role in him saying, you know what, I'm not going to play college basketball anymore. I'm going to prepare for the NBA. And if Kate Cunningham is sitting here and saying, okay, I'm not going to play college basketball. I'm going to go ahead and move on. You know, whether that means simply starting his preparation, whether that means, you know, joining the G League elite team, you know, whatever, then you're looking at two consecutive seasons where arguably the top talent in the class you know, didn't play for most of the season, much less the postseason. And so you you think it's the NCAA is not getting the most for its marketing buck right now, you would have to say, with those decisions. Absolutely not. And thinking in terms of Oklahoma State's upcoming season, you have to assume in one way or another, Cade Cunningham is going to explore his options to leave the program. Jeff Goodman tweeted out that Cade Cunningham had previously turned down a serious offer from the G League uh, that was at least as much as the offer given to Jalen Green. And at the time, he wasn't interested, but now who knows? And even 
you know, this this sounds more appealing because you know you mentioned last time that maybe given the Shea Patterson example transferring from Ole Miss to Michigan, you know, maybe that would suggest that Cade and the other members of the the class of 2020 class incoming class at Oklahoma State, maybe they could transfer out. But at the same time, when you look at what happened for graduate transfers who had just joined Louisville after or or just before Rick Pitino was removed there and, and the sanctions were levied on that program, they weren't allowed to transfer. So unless the NCAA really stretches to make sure that Cade Cunningham stays in the NCAA, whether or not that's at Oklahoma State or elsewhere, you have to assume that his, his appearance in the NCAA tournament for sure, but in the NCAA at all, is is seriously at risk right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would think the NCAA in this specific circumstance, you know, given the timing and everything else would be op- more open to a Kate Cunningham transferring and being able to play immediately. Uh, having said that, we don't know that's the way he'll go. We don't know that's the way the NCAA would go. We don't know if Cunningham elects not to play college basketball, whether some Oklahoma State players, some other ones, you know, would get that opportunity. They they themselves added a graduate transfer to this process and very on flavors. A guy who fit really well alongside Kate Cunningham, who Cunningham's a great, you know, distributor. He's basically a six foot six point guard, you know, six foot six, 215 pound point guard. And Flavors was one of the elite shooters on the graduate transfer market. He shot, I think, 44% right around from three last year. And so he was a great fit with Cunningham. If Cunningham doesn't go to Oklahoma State, if he either elects to transfer or just simply leave college basketball behind, what happens to Flavors? What happens to the other freshmen in that class? Do they decide to say, well, since we aren't quote-unquote one-and-dones, we're going to stick this thing out. Uh, It it represents an interesting question, and and like we talked about a little bit earlier, Mike Boynton is kind of at that point in his career where he needs to show something. And, you know, they haven't reached the NCAA tournament yet, you know, in his tenure. This was a team that I I feel relatively strongly about the fact that they – they would have been there. They would have had a great chance to not just make the tournament, but potentially win a game or two in the tournament. And so when you look at the added longevity that that, that could have added to him, you know, to his career at Oklahoma State and, and how that could have kind of reset the 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 clock on, on you know, on his hot seat, so to speak, all of a sudden being in a situation this situation for something that's outside of your control it, it has to be pretty frustrating for Boynton it has to be frustrating for the players and, and you feel bad for all of them and it's you know it's yet another example Tony of why you just do not cooperate with the NCAA because one of the interesting pieces of information that that has come out you know since our first recording was the fact that Oklahoma State cooperated fully and Lamont Evans did not but Oklahoma State did and I'm pretty sure you can't look at Oklahoma State's penalties and say that the NCAA took it easy on them for cooperating no I mean it seems it seems that had they not cooperated the NCAA would have extended the postseason ban by another year but it just feels like everybody got really attacked and like you said at the top Boyton, he's really bearing the brunt of this. When you when you think about the timing in terms of which team is impacted by this, like I don't I don't think it would have been nearly as big a deal if they had gotten this punishment last year, given the recruiting class then and the recruiting class now, and given the timing in his contract, 
And, you know, I just, I, I feel very strongly that if, if you were a coach, and, and I know we've talked about this before, but if you were a coach or, or even a recruit who is considering joining a program that has the shadow of NCAA punishment looming over them, surely you have to, you know, as, as a coach say, okay, I'll, I'll do this, but like you can't hold the, the loss year against me because that was before my time. Or if you're a player, you, you got to be able to say, you know, if, if there's a loss year, I want to make sure that you're going to grant me permission to, you know, pursue postseason play elsewhere, for example. And, and it just seems from what you're telling me that that's not actually the, the approach from administration. That's not really what's happening for these coaches. And that boggles my mind. Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a situation where even if you had that, you know, sort of agreement with Boynton early on and, and said, Hey, you know, whatever this penalty happens, you know, we're not going to hold that against you. You know, it, it's fine and well to say that Evans was arrested all the way back in uh, fall of 2017. So we're coming up on, you know, several years since that point you've seen Boynton coach and if you're in a spot where you're a booster and you're looking at it and you're saying you know I I really don't think Boynton is our guy of course you're going to use this against him of course you're going to say you know what you didn't reach the NCAA tournament four years or you know or maybe even five years after this year And, and I think the thing that that bothers me about this is not only are they losing the chance to make the postseason this year? But when you look at the possible exodus, when you look at the fact that a successful season with Kate Cunningham probably sets you up well with recruits for the future, you know, Boynton's been coaching an undermanned roster for most of his time at Oklahoma State. And this was really going to be the first time he was going to have a full complement of players that look like a legitimate Big 12 roster. And so we were going to get a chance to see what he could do with, with some talent there. And if uh, if they miss the postseason this year, as it sounds like obviously they're they're going to, and uh, and they don't have a chance to build on what could have been you know, if they would have gone to a Sweet 16 this year, all of a sudden, you know, Boynton's fortunes, that program's fortunes, et cetera, they're going in a completely different direction. Yep. I mean, you know, I, I think the program has had uh, a difficult time of it since uh, Brad Underwood left. And I know there were complicated situations there, but, you know, since then, it's just it has not been a good few years for Oklahoma State basketball. And seeing this happen, I mean, you know, you could see a situation where the program is stuck in the bottom third or at least the bottom half of the Big 12 for the foreseeable future. Uh, and, you know, when you look back 10 years out and you wonder, how did Oklahoma State, you know, a proud program get here? You know, they, they, they just had, you know, just a few years ago, Marcus Smart, that's like a top five lottery pick. How, how are all of a sudden they uh, a bottom tier team in the Big 12? Well, you can look at a moment like this, and, and that could be that point, that moment that changed everything. Sure, and you've seen, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. And you look at, you know, Texas Tech was a traditional bottom-tier program in the Big 12 that obviously elevated quite a bit uh, when you look at Chris Beard and what he's been able to accomplish there. You know, there are different programs that have been able to to step up over that time as well. And, and like I said, I mean, they had some talent um, his first year. They were still a little undermanned. And they beat a Kansas team that went to the Final Four twice during the regular season. 
they they swept the Jayhawks in Boynton's first year. And so, you know, as somebody who pays a lot of attention to the Big 12 in particular, because that's the region that I'm based in, um, I was very interested this year to see what Boynton did with a full complement and, and with a full roster that that he felt like they could roll out a ball against anybody in the Big 12 and not be you know, extremely under-talented or, or underwhelming from a personnel standpoint against other people. And now, you know, it looks like even if most of the guys stand pat, he's not going to get a chance to back that up by making any sort of postseason run. And so it's uh, it's an unfortunate thing for Boynton. It really, really stinks for those kids. And it, it really puts kind of a damper on what was going to be potentially a really exciting season for Oklahoma State that that's absolutely for sure I, I don't I don't think it, it like you have to assume that the the ticket sales are just going to be bad you're going to see the the TV numbers are going to be down I mean there's no way without without the possibility of playoffs of NCAA tournament forget about it let's um let, let, let's look macro for a second now Kyle Boone tweeted a few minutes ago he said these are the punishments that Oklahoma State got with one major violation, according to the NCAA. A program like Kansas with five major violations that we've talked about in the past, you have to assume they're going to get the hammer. Sure, if the NCAA is capable of wielding it. And what I mean by that is the Kansas case specifically, um, I think the NCAA might have overreached. And that that hasn't typically gone well for the NCAA in the past. When you look at the Penn state stuff that got overturned, you look at, you know, the NCAA flat taking it on the chin, uh, with, with North Carolina. Um, it, it was, it hasn't worked out necessarily the best. And you look at the way the NCAA could have gone after Kansas and basically said, you know what you told us you played an ineligible player with Silvio DeSosa, right? And they went to a Final Four. So because you played that ineligible player, we're going to take down that Final Four banner. We're also going to hit you with a postseason ban, et cetera. I think they would have been better off. Instead, they're trying sort of this novel approach that has never been done before of declaring, you know, Adidas and TJ Gasnola a Kansas booster. And I just don't see how that plays out in front of an independent panel, which is where this thing is ultimately going to be decided. And so I think the Kansas case is interesting because of that. I do think obviously there's some fear there in that whether you're Kansas, whether you're Arizona and you have something coming up, whether the NCAA, you know, when or however the NCAA decides to go after LSU, you're sitting there in a situation and you're saying, we can't lose this case. And the reason why is you look at that Oklahoma State thing and you say, if that's the penalty for, you know, for one year, you know, then we really have to fight this thing. If you were thinking you were going to get a wrap across the knuckles from a ruler, now you just learned that the teacher is grabbing a two by four and it's, it's worth it to get, <laughs> get up from your desk and do everything you can, you know, to, to avoid that. And so I do think that you're going to, really see these schools put a lot of effort into fighting back against the NCAA on this stuff, given that programs that have cooperated fully with relatively minor infractions are just getting absolutely drilled. And, you know, Kansas or, or whoever, they don't have any choice but to really fight back. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, when you scroll down the official NCAA press release, you can see on, on a few of, of the punishments at the end, in parentheses, it says self-imposed by the university. Yeah. And every single one of those instances to me just feels like a mistake making concessions when you already feel the noose tightening around your neck. Like it's unnecessary. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I mean, here's the worst thing about all of this, or one of the worst things about all of this, Tony, is is when you look at Oklahoma State's case, basically what it is is that Lamont Evans was getting money from financial advisors to steer players to said financial advisors. And so what he was doing was he was taking money to set these players up you know, and basically make introductions, et cetera. So the players who were involved were victims in this. There's no competitive advantage. Oklahoma State didn't win any extra games. It's not like he was out paying recruits, you know, or whatever to go to Oklahoma State. There was no competitive advantage. Evans, you know, was fired, had, you know, all these different things happen. He's no longer a part of the Oklahoma State program. And yet you hit the program this hard for something where, again, Oklahoma State got no competitive advantage from this whatsoever, and they have to sit at an NCAA tournament and have all these other penalties. And like you said, kind of almost sillily, you know, if not stupidly, um, self-impose some other ones uh, on themselves. And so it's, it's a wild thing. It really is. From an NCAA perspective, they're in a unique moment right now when, especially as it relates to the coronavirus, uh, people are wondering exactly what value the NCAA as a regulatory organization uh, can play when you see that conference commissioners, athletic directors are really the people, uh, and university presidents, I should add, are really the people making the big policy changes. And then you see, it, it feels like you know the, the NCAA is using this as an opportunity to flex but they're shooting themselves in the foot because like you said at, at the top, this is the second year in a row where an NCAA uh, ruling is, you know, if not in by, by the words themselves in reality are pushing the top prospect out of the NCAA tournament, which obviously is, is no good for the NCAA under any circumstances. And it just feels like they're really out of their element and, and struggling to figure out their exact role in this, which is why I feel like the, the whole, biting off too much uh, more than they can chew in the Kansas situation. It, it fits right into this whole attitude at the NCAA headquarters right now. Sure. And, and I mean, let's, let's go to the doomsday scenario for, for a minute. Let's say Kansas gets absolutely drilled. LSU gets drilled. Arizona gets drilled and all of them pick up, say three year postseason bans. Duke, you know, the, the case against Zion Williamson stuff comes out that you don't want to come out. How is that going to help the NCAA when three years from now in the NCAA tournament, you don't have Kansas, Arizona, LSU, Duke, whoever else, you know, winds up coming up in, in this stuff. You know, they're, they're taking money out of their own pockets. And I get that you want to penalize people who, who have done stuff wrong, but there also needs to be an element of fairness to it. There needs to be an element of perspective to it. And I think right now the NCAA lacks both fairness and perspective. And when you look at the Oklahoma State penalties in particular, where there was no advantage gain, 
It was one assistant coach who was steering players to a financial advisor and not any of the current players. You know, I just, where is the fairness and perspective in that? I, I, I really don't see it. And I think the NCAA is, is head, starting to head down a road that, that maybe doesn't have the ending that the NCAA thinks was going to have. Yep. And, and, and before we, you know, cut this off, it, it, it would just be funny if LSU, if Arizona, if Kansas and whoever else gets looped into this stuff, maybe Duke with the Zion situation where those cases are still ongoing and the NCAA passes new name, image, and likeness legislation, at which point the things that they are prosecuting teams for are, you know, basically sanctioned. And, um, but they, you know, because they're the NCAA, they will feel compelled to follow through with the cases because the rules were such when they, you know, when these cases were playing out. And again, they will complete, you know, if that's how it plays out, they would again, completely undermine themselves, uh, as they have in this and other cases. Sure. I, I, you know, I equate it to getting a traffic ticket, you know, it, it depends on what you're getting a ticket for. If you're, you know, if you're going 35 miles over the speed limit, yeah, you should, you should probably, you know, get punished for that. If you're, what was it? Was it Tim Hardaway who was going like 125 in a school zone? You should probably, probably get punished, uh, get punished for that. But if your left tail light is out, you know, the police officer should, should pull you over, tell you your tail light is out, give you a warning and send you on your way. And, the Oklahoma State case in particular feels like it should have been a warning case. You know, something where you say, hey, tighten up your compliance. Maybe we'll hit you with a fine, you know, et cetera. But a postseason ban, punishing the people who had nothing to do with it, all of that feels like you're getting a ticket for being, you know, 30 miles over the speed limit when really all you had was a taillight out and, and things could have gone a little differently. So let's circle back to Cade before we head out. Um, what can and should the NCAA do to guarantee or to at least put themselves in the best position to keep Cade Cunningham in the NCAA's uh, gr- greater community, even if he ends up having to leave Oklahoma State? Let's assume for a second he's done with Oklahoma State. He's not playing for no playoffs, right? What do they have to do to make sure that he stays? Uh, I think... You almost have to, and this would be unprecedented, but you would almost have to come out and say, you know, if Cade Cunningham decides to transfer, you don't want to come out and say before that, hey, Cade, if you want to transfer somewhere, you'll be cool. Because obviously you're tampering with Oklahoma State's player at that point. But if he does decide, you know what, I'm leaving Oklahoma State, letting him know that, hey, if you want to go elsewhere, if you've made that decision, you know, you will be approved for, for immediate eligibility. It's not something where you're going to have to sit there and wonder whether you're going to have it. And I think that's that's probably the best case scenario at this point. But it, it's worth noting, and I think you'll agree, Tani, that the best case scenario was actually just not banning Oklahoma State for the postseason in the first place. Uh yeah, I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna have much of an argument for me there, um, you know. And of course, if if like we said on the front half of the episode, 
if if Cade Cunningham does decide to transfer, it's not like this is going to be brand new and there's going to be a whole new recruitment. He has relationships with schools, and it, it very much could be a, a situation where the rich get richer. Kentucky and North Carolina both were deep in on Cade, and uh, and they are among the top three classes in the twenty four seven class ranking. So uh, we will definitely see what happens. This is an ongoing story. Oklahoma State banned from the postseason as well as a host of other punishments, which means the Cade Cunningham number one prospect in the class of 2020 is, uh, as of now, not welcome in the NCAA postseason. Come Flaherty, thanks so much for coming on two, maybe even three times today. All right. Thanks a lot, Tony. It's been a, uh, been a wild, if not fun day. <laughs> That's for sure. Thanks again. All right. Thanks again to Kevin Flaherty for coming on the show. That's going to do it for today's episode of the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Really hope you enjoyed uh, two very interesting topics and two topics that we will continue to cover on the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show as they develop. And as we get closer to the draft, it's fair to say that you should expect us to have some good draft content from our scouts and from the people who are doing mock drafts in our extended network. We've got draft uh, coverage coming for you in the coming months. Of course, it's still... Uh, four months away from us at the moment, the NBA draft. So we got time, and but it's definitely on the horizon. So that's going to do it for today's show. Hope you'll take the time to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really feel kind, give a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The written ones especially make a real difference for us. Apple Podcasts, they have their weird magic formula. And the written ones, they hold a certain extra oomph that the five-star rating just doesn't quite have. So anybody who wants to take an extra 10 seconds, write out a review and, and tell us maybe even a topic that you want us to cover, we'd greatly appreciate that. So uh, until next week, I'm Tony Levitt, and this has been the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show.